Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is a year-end uh, season finale double feature with The Devil Rides Out and Brawl and Cell Block 99, two fairly different films, but both genre films, one a horror movie from the 60s, the other neo-exploitation prison film from the past few years. Initially, this was just going to be the latter review, but it was a little too short, I think, to stand in just one episode, so I decided to pull out another one from my Patreon archive and uh, share it with the public here. My previous episode covered the film Elephant, about uh, the Irish Troubles, kind of an experimental approach to that that was aired on British TV in the late 80s by the filmmaker Alan Clark. A lot of interesting stuff to discuss there, the style, the themes, the context. Historically, got some interesting feedback from somebody who had that perspective from that time. And uh, also... Uh, reading what some other critics have had to say about it being film versus TV, the difference in the mediums. A lot of great stuff to dig into there, so check out that episode from November. Uh, Meanwhile, on another feed, I have paused uh, Lost in Twin Peaks, my episodic podcast. It was uh, just taking up too much time to repackage that material that, again, was also recorded for patrons, but I was doing a lot of re-editing, moving stuff around, creating illustrated companions. So I will return to that for the season one finale sometime in December and then pause again until probably until the Firewalk With Me uh, 30th anniversary next May when I may just put up a Firewalk With Me episode in that format and then uh, maybe do season three to for the fifth anniversary and then circle back around to season two. So it's going to end up being done most likely somewhat out of order just uh, because I, I couldn't do it on the original schedule I had planned. And that, that was the last of my major ongoing projects that I'd set for myself this fall. Uh, this season has really been a roller coaster of expectations and having to kind of one by one just knock down those initial goals. So kind of disappointing, but also a relief to have much of that out of the way. And I can just focus on meeting these uh, public deadlines every month and the patron deadlines uh, every month after catching up with those, and uh, and also Twin Peaks Cinema Feed, same thing, representing patron material for the public. That will keep going up every month. And then when I'm not working on those, then I can build up my backlog and start unveiling projects again when they are actually closer to being done. The one deadline work that I might uh, return to soon is the Olympic series just because the Feb- in February the Winter Olympics are coming on and I was going to cover uh, Olympic documentaries every month do a group of them in capsule reviews and I haven't done that since August so if I want to resume that and actually you know it, it would be before that February those February games so it would be in January and run every week or so so that's the last kind of deadline project I'm hanging on to at the moment but we'll see where that goes so Here's what I've been up to since the last podcast. On my Twin Peaks Cinema feed, I released a review of the film Vertigo. It's probably my longest episode comparing uh, something to Twin Peaks, the great Alfred Hitchcock thriller that uh, it's part of the What's in the Name series on that podcast where I'm looking at films that directly influence character names, although, of course, there's so much deeper psychology and uh, aesthetics and themes to deal to uh, dive into with Vertigo. So definitely check out that episode. All these will be linked in the show notes below. On Lost in Twin Peaks, since we last uh, met on this feed, I've also uh, covered the In the Weeds and Archive sections for Season 1, Episode 5, looking at some trivia and then what people, including me, said about it in the past. 
And then I also did the whole week's worth of podcasts for seasons one, season one, episode six and seven. So that's the welcome, mystery, Laura, subplots, current events, and again, in the weeds and archives categories. I would do daily podcasts on that feed with an episode every week, a category every day. And I had illustrated companions for that on my site. And then I put up a little podcast called A Pause Before the Finale Announcement, which just said what I've already said here on this podcast. On YouTube, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number four, audio only, with the Peaks Chats podcast hosts, Alan Magellan and Ryan. Great discussion with them that I cross-posted publicly on Patreon. And for $5 a month patrons, you have the Patreon-exclusive part two of that conversation, uh, longer than the first part. The first part's about a half hour. The second part is a full 50 additional minutes on Patreon for the for that tier of patrons. Uh, every month I put out a new uh, longer part of a Twin Peaks Conversations for that group. For a dollar a month patrons, I finally caught up with and released the what should have been the October episode, episode 84, Twin Peaks Cinema, Field of Dreams. Uh, plus Twin Peaks Reflections on Rusty, Annie, Library, Easter Park, Lodge Mythology, and Season 3, Part 14, and more. Uh, then I also caught up with Episode 85, Twin Peaks Cinema, Drugstore Cowboy, another 1989 film uh, with some Twin Peaks connections. Uh, plus the Twin Peaks Reflections on Wyndham, Major Briggs, Airfields and Twin Peaks in Oregon, Audrey and John Justice Wheeler Romance connected to Season 3, Part 12, and uh, Elephant Archive Reading. Now that's a different elephant film than the one I already mentioned. That one is directed by Gus Van Zant. I wrote a review of it in 2010, which I read aloud on this podcast because Gus Van Zant also directed Drugstore Cowboy, so there was a connection there. And uh, I also opened up my Lost in Twin Peaks episode number 28 to all patrons, dollar a month included, uh, include a status update with that, put up a 12-minute update podcast discussing new approaches, delayed rewards, and abandoned public projects. Again, the stuff I've discussed here as well. And then I posed the question, when should I share Twin Peaks Cinema, The Sweet Hereafter, a topic that I recorded months ago and wanted to save till February. And I think the general feedback was, yeah, save it save it for February. That's when I'm probably going to wrap up the Patreon version of Twin Peaks Cinema, at least for the time being. And then I posed the question, trouble accessing RSS and or downloading older podcasts about uh, troubleshooting. So a lot of separate little posts on uh Patreon, but the big ones were those two podcasts and the second half of the, or more than the second half of the Twin Peaks conversations. On my site, lostinthemovies.com, the Mad Men Season 6 viewing diary has continued with Episode 10, A Tale of Two Cities, Episode 11, Favors, Episode 12, The Quality of Mercy, and Episode 13, In Care Of, which is the Season 6 finale. Really enjoyed this season. It covered 1968. I thought its trajectory very interesting. It started off with me wondering, gee, if they kind of are they retracing old grounds here? Uh, but as they incorporated events from 68 and where they took Dawn's story, I just thought was really interesting. Some great episodes in there. Now, I had I had planned to pause this project as I was going to focus on, uh, you know, the Lost in Twin Peaks series and the Twin Peaks character series where I would be doing character studies early in 2022. Since all of that's been pushed back and delayed, I am going to go ahead with the Mad Men viewing diary because those are already written. They're done. And uh, so keep looking for those every Monday. Season 7 premiere will be this coming Monday, and then it'll just continue through the whole series finale in the throughout the winter. I also posted a plan for Journey Through Twin Peaks and more, a status update and progress tracker. This is basically replacing the path 
toward uh, or path back to journey through Twin Peaks that I was operating off of where I had all these ambitious goals that I was taking one step at a time and it just totally fell apart with the public podcasts in in uh, October and November. So this is a much simpler approach, just kind of lays out a few of the goals and where I am on those goals. And then also put up a status update, pausing Lost in Twin Peaks and more again, discussing what I discussed here. So that's what I've been up to really longer section than I thought uh, because I did abandon so much, but I guess the abandoning itself is a uh, sort of time consuming to discuss. So the, the upshot of that is this monthly podcast will continue uh, the next season will begin in January. There will not be a Star Wars theme as I originally hoped for and intended. It's just going to be simpler, just re- you know, continuing to republish some reviews. Um, there may be some themed groups where I put out episodes by a certain director a few months in a row or something like that. Um, I do think uh, I'll be probably doing that with the first at least couple episodes of the year. And you'll find out uh, at the end of this episode... I'll play a snippet of the trailer for that, the first of those films. But uh, before we get there, let's start discussing these two other films, beginning with The Devil Rides Out. There is a Twin Peaks spoiler uh, embedded in the review, but I'll give you warning beforehand, so you can skip ahead 30 seconds if uh, you want to, uh, just in the first review. The Ghost of Mendes. The Devil Himself. Christopher Lee as Derisha, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Weekly's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly! Back to back! Join hands! The Devil Rides Out is one of the most acclaimed Hammer films from the British horror film company in the 50s and 60s. It stars Christopher Lee. It's directed by Terence Fisher. It's based on a classic British uh, horror thriller of the 1930s. So it kind of has all those elements going for it. It actually reminded me in sort of the broad outline of its story quite a bit of the film The Black Cat from the early 30s, a Hollywood film. It's very different in tone and style, but both films deal with sort of these older aristocrats who have a long history and understanding of each other and uh, one of them is practicing uh, the occult part of a leading a satanic cult and uh, wants to sacrifice somebody to that cult and uh, the other person is sort of protecting these younger more naive people and fighting this rival uh, using you know in this case using more black magic in that film i don't think there's as much supernatural stuff going on as i if i recall correctly black cat is more overtly kind of uh tongue-in-cheek and campy and off-kilter, and this is played much more straight. A lot of people like to note that this is one of those rare films where Christopher Lee plays a good guy instead of a bad guy, which, you know, even up to close to the present day with Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, obviously he's more usually typecast as a villain. And apparently he felt this was one of his favorite films, and he wanted, he kind of hoped that he could remake it later, actually playing the character that he, that he plays in this, the Duke de Richelieu, 
as uh, an older man than you know he was at the time. I think he was playing somewhat, maybe a little older than he was, but kind of bring his age and wisdom and maturity to that same part. And uh, that's an interesting idea. I think for me, the most interesting character in the film by far was the guy who's basically the uh, Alistair Crowley stand-in. Uh, he's played by Charles Gray. His name is Mokata, and he is the leader of the satanic cult who tries to manipulate uh, everybody else in the film to kind of get what he wants, whether it's through hypnosis or sort of mind-melding, sending hallucinations their way. He never wants to outright attack them. So, for example, he'll walk up to a, a mansion and knock politely on the door and give his card with his name and announce himself and then sit and talk with the hostess of the estate to try to get her to do what he wants and manipulate things around him and find out where people are and have them killed via sort of surrogates that he has in the in the building but he himself won't attack overtly so there's just this interesting dynamic going on between the decorum of this social class and the violence that uh, he's trying to enact upon it while still playing by their rules i found that really compelling so the film is about three friends the Duc de Richelieu, Rex, and Simon. Simon's the youngest of them, and he's getting involved in the occult, and the others are trying to save him. It's interesting that there's no real character development or sort of... There's no build-up to this. There's no effort to get us sort of invested in the characters. We're just sort of plopped down in their world, and right away they're trying to pull this guy out from uh, his, his satanic party. We do have somebody whose eyes we're seeing it through. Rex is kind of an outsider to all of this spiritual conflict, and as the film goes along, he's he's he becomes sort of the audience surrogate. Rex is also given something to do in the story by becoming involved with Tanith, a woman who's also uh, going to be initiated into the satanic cult, and he's sort of more fixated on saving her. Well, the uh, Duke de Richelieu is more focused on saving Simon. There were certain points of the film where I just found myself kind of rooting for Mokata just because he was more interesting, and he he actually articulated. A kind of a world view which isn't really borne out by his actions like he says oh there's no good or evil magic it's just using will in various ways but of course his goal is to like sacrifice all these people and you know so it, it's sort of immorality disguised as amorality but nonetheless he articulates an interesting vision and he's just a very compelling character kind of eerily creepily charismatic character clearly based on alistair crowley who apparently the author of the book that this is based on dennis wheatley um, you know, met with at one point and was somewhat in the same circles as in the early part of the 20th century. And clearly when you have a sort of British gentleman out in the country running a satanic cult, and of course, when he's sort of a little bit round and intense eyes like this character has, I mean, they're going for, for Crowley. And I'd be interested to know what Crowley thought of this uh, story. What, you know, he obviously wasn't still alive when the film came out, but when the novel came out, I would imagine he thought it was kind of a goofy version of what he was doing. It's a pretty straightforward Satanism. You know, they have a devil appear as a, as a kind of a goat figure. They have they have a big rally out in the woods where they're all in robes and they're going to draw blood and put it on the chalices and kill chickens. And at one point they want to sacrifice a little girl. It's all more or less straightforward satanic panic type stuff. And uh, except for the moments where, where Mokata is actually trying to psychically control the, the characters from within the house. That to me was the best scene in the movie. I found really interesting the way that he plays by their rules, but is also bending them to his purposes. I also thought the climax was pretty effective. They have to draw 
a circle within the room with text sort of around it. You know, that, that classic Nosferatu, uh, Hocus Pocus, any supernatural movie you can think of where the, the characters kind of do that. And so all of these hallucinations are attacking them and they have to stay within the circle and not be tempted out. That was a really good tense sequence too. I looked up the book and the author just a little bit. It's interesting. Wheatley was a uh, sort of a conservative, upper upper kind of bourgeois businessman type. He apparently was opposed to Nazism, but otherwise uh, despised any sort of left socialist reformism. And he buried a time capsule on his estate that would, uh, you know, was to be open at a future date. And they found it in 1969. And it predicted that the socialism would be the downfall of society. And you should be able to uh, assassinate tyrannical uh, politicians and things like that. So I suppose you can see a little bit of that in the film. Uh, interestingly enough, he thought communism was a satanically controlled uh, force. So he, he was himself interested in the, uh, obviously he's interested in the matters that were in this story, but actually kind of uh, seems to have believed in in this sort of satanic force in society and that it must be opposed and everything like that. The film opposes the devil worship with obviously enough Christianity. It's interesting. There's no real like theology in the film that I can see. Like they invoke the name of Jesus. They use a crucifix and things like that. But it seems like it's just sort of a stand in for this idea of light forces versus dark forces or good versus bad. Like there's nothing particularly Christian about it that I could kind of suss out. Although there is a character who's resurrected, I suppose. Another interesting thing about this film in relation to Twin Peaks, which obviously has a little bit of an influence of Crowley and uh, the occult and things like that in it. And this obviously is a spoiler, so go jump ahead 30 seconds or so if uh, you have not seen all of Twin Peaks, including the season three all the way to the end. Uh, At the end of the return, of course, the characters are able to reverse time and you know cooper even goes into the the lodge or the convenience space store space or whatever you want to call it and you know the the one-armed man invokes the fire walk with me uh statement the poem and then they go off together and time is reversed and he's able to rescue someone and something similar happens at the end of the devil rides out where there's this incantation and then they sort of wake up and things have switched around and I have to wonder, this This seems like a film Frost would like and be interested in. I have to wonder maybe if that had any influence on him. And I'd, I'd actually be curious to hear from uh, Jeff, who recommended this, if he had that in mind at all when he watched it again. Because that definitely occurred to me this time. Jeff actually wrote to me a little bit about the film way back when he recommended it. Uh, it looks like back in February, actually. Uh, this was going to be one of the March recommendations that obviously has gotten stretched out. Um, when I went to one a week instead. And actually, just as a side note, before I read his feedback, when I was going to cover more films than once at a time, I was going to cover this with Eyes Wide Shut and the film Holy Smoke. I think that would have made an interesting combination. You know, three films sort of about secret societies or cults and uh, people trying to get in or get out of them in various ways so that's a little bit of a lost opportunity but i guess you can associate my my uh, chats about those in your mind and form your own kind of voltron uh, podcast on uh, secret societies and and esoteric cults but anyways jeff wrote back then i'm going to include this here as part of the review rather than in the listener feedback section because i want to respond to it uh in the context of of the film he wrote 
I just took the opportunity to watch it again. Certain elements haven't aged well, but it has a nice atmosphere, and Christopher Lee at his Christopher Leeist. Also interesting that the original novel was written in the early 1930s, and while the film is set at that time as well, it's also clearly a product of the late 1960s in many ways. My area of work deals with the history of the First World War, and it's impossible not to read Lee's character as a veteran of that conflict, although I don't think it's ever mentioned in the script. That's a great point. I, I think there is this sense of this sort of spiritual battle coming out of a very sort of material, physical battle earlier in a way. And uh, that is an aspect that really reminded me of The Black Cat and maybe even caused me to think of it going in, the fact that he mentioned this before I even saw it. Because in The Black Cat, it's very overt that the two characters in conflict were uh, veterans of World War One, and actually that's where the origin of their conflict lies. And, and, and the battle that they're undergoing now is sort of a reflection of that in a way. I think the characters actually built his estate on a battlefield, a uh, former battlefield that he uh, led his forces to defeat on or something like that. It would be interesting to learn more about these characters and kind of where they're coming from. And one thing I did discover kind of looking at the history of the book and everything like that is apparently the, this was part of a larger series on these characters, which also explains why they're sort of so perfunctory, like they were just thrown into their world and expected to care about them. Uh, they, you know, the, the film wasn't part of that larger thing, but it's coming out of a story which was uh, not so much interested in the character development because these characters already existed, I guess. And I'd be interested to know more about where they go at various points in, in the previous novels and the next novels. And, uh, you know, if, if there's sort of more complexity that develops there, or if they're just always sort of these crusaders fighting against the darkness encroaching on the world. And I'd actually be interested to know as well what Jeff felt in terms of it being a product of the late 1960s. I can see that to a sense. I mean, for one thing, the opening credits reminded me somewhat of like a, in it's sort of an obvious way of like Kenneth Anger's work where he's invoking all of this satanic or occult imagery for obviously very different purposes. Uh, you know, I think if he saw this film, he definitely would be more sympathetic with Mokata or make a film where Mokata is, you know, the the hero if, if he made narrative films at all. I think also you could see it as, I suppose, maybe sort of a comment on the counterculture and, and a sort of a reaction to that. Uh, certainly the, the author Wheatley was still alive at this time, and uh, he, I'm sure, felt that way, you know, about the the counterculture. And it's interesting now that I think about it, actually, they said that his time capsule warning of this dystopian future in which socialists, you know, had destroyed society was dug up and found in 1969. He was still alive. So a little bit of a, I don't know, I find that kind of amusing in some way, just this idea of this, this uh, old man making, casting these dire warnings about the future. And they just, they dig him up 20 years later. And it's not true, but he's also just still alive. Like, Oh, yeah. Whoops. For me, the strongest thing the film has going for it is this contrast between the genteel society and the diabolical cult. At times, I think that becomes a sort of a strain, like all of these chases down the dirt roads and 1930s cars get a little tiresome when they're sort of racing from one house to the other. It's a little awkward. Obviously, that scene where where Makata comes into the house. Other moments, too, like even just when they arrive and they're like, we're here, he's going to come for us. But they're not like calling the police or like arming themselves or whatever. They're just like, yep, we're going to sit here and leave our daughter in the nursery while this Satanist like mentally attacks our house. 
And it's just, it's kind of fascinating, kind of funny. It reminds me a lot of how Raymond Chandler wrote about uh, Dashiell Hammett taking the detective story out of the, uh, how did he put it? He said, out of the drawing room and into the alley. You know, this idea of going from all of these mysteries set amongst these genteel folks of the leisure class in the British countryside. Oh, I do say, you know, so-and-so's been murdered. Uh, let's all sit around and decide in our, you know, in our parlor who, who may have done this while we smoke the finest cigars. And, you know, that sort of thing where it's almost a game, even though it's life and death. And then taking it and putting it in this grittier world, which would lead to noir and all of that stuff. And in a way, this film is almost sort of like putting horror back into the drawing room. And it's just, I like, I just find that element of it fascinating. This, this life or death struggle, but they're all still adhering to these polite terms. Like, why does the woman let him into the house? I just, I, I love it. I don't know that, that, that I got a big kick out of. There was like a big uh, ceremony on Salisbury Plain. I think that's something that would have played really well if I'd watched a better version of it. Unfortunately, the version I was able to see was online. The colors aren't great. The picture isn't that sharp so i'm missing some of the uh, pictorial beauty that the film is known for the the interior stuff would have worked better for me regardless just because i find i just find that dynamic more fascinating than sort of the more conventional let's go out in the woods and sacrifice a goat type of thing although the goat devil himself was kind of cool looking And then here's some feedback I received on The Devil Rides Out from the person who had suggested it to me initially, a patron who recommended this for me to cover. Listener feedback this week includes a comment from Jeff, who recommended the film in focus The Devil Rides Out a few weeks ago. He writes, Really what I was getting at with the 60s comment was the counterculture, or just youth culture that seemed to be reflected in the story. Teens going out into the woods and dancing and having mad orgies while upright older characters who remember the war lament their tomfoolery. Both the film and the 1930s book, I guess, can carry these same themes, as the post-war generation's carefree behavior was no doubt troubling, irritating, and enviable to their elders in both time periods. Yes, the occult elements did remind me of Mark Frost a little, though I didn't request the film for that reason particularly. Again, I recommend the 2000s British TV miniseries Apparitions. If you want to take on these devilish themes, that is more authentically rooted in Christian, specifically Catholic, theology. So that's definitely something I'd be interested to check out at some point, uh, because yes, I, I do think it's interesting to kind of get that occult point of view, both from a general standpoint, but also from a kind of a reactionary Catholic Christian perspective as well. I think that that could be kind of a rich field to mine. Now on to the second film, Brawl in Cell Block 99. It's a dangerous oh, oh. Don't tell me my business. I do things direct, and I have a system. Won't last Minimum freedom. I'm not going to tell you anything you want to hear. And prison will give me plenty of time to look at guys I don't like. Brawl in Cell Block 99 tells the story of a man who uh, just descends further and further as the film goes along until he seems like he's in the literal embodiment of hell. Um, You know, like a torture chamber, basically. And likewise, the film itself goes from sort of semi-realistic crime drama into extremely over-the-top exploitation film. 
this is a movie you can't really talk too much about without uh, spoiling, so if you care about that, um, skip ahead. I will say, if you're curious to check it out, make sure you have a stomach for the gruesome, because it definitely goes in that direction. So the character in the film uh, starts off as a mechanic. He loses his job, goes back to his house, his wife, who was just cheating on him. They decide to stick it out, and he's going to go back to a job he had running drugs. So get a nicer house. Everything seems to be going okay. And then he gets forced into this situation that he's not really comfortable with. Um, it all goes to shit, and they, there's a shootout with the cops. And interestingly enough, his uh, turning point in the film, essentially, or at least the first of many turning points, is that he races back to shoot the two drug runners that he was with and essentially save the cops. They pander a little bit in the film to this idea of sort of the, you know, the noble patriotic uh, uh, police loving drug dealer, you know, where you kind of want to have your cake and eat it too, of like a guy who's an outlaw, but supports authority in some way. I don't know how plausible I found it, but it, it worked as a plot twist, as a, as a turn of the plot, I guess. And so anyways, he goes to prison and then his wife is kidnapped by the dealer who was screwed over when he went back to shoot it out with the, the two other drug runners. And this guy holds his wife hostage, his pregnant wife. And at this point, the movie starts to become more violent and more kind of subtly absurd and there's definitely levels to this hell like you know it starts in a sort of normal prison and then it gets he gets sent to this maximum security prison which is almost like a ghoulish horror film and then within that he gets sent to a secret part of the prison cell block 99 and then within that he gets forced into the gym room where he gets the crap beaten out of him and his cell floor has uh, glass all over it it's just like each each phase of this kind of descent is worse and worse than what came before. Throughout the film, there's a lot of cutesy dialogue, you know, one-liners. And that was like my least favorite thing about the movie up until the end where it suddenly started to fit what type of movie this was. I wonder if I watched it again, if, if that would bother me as much or if I just kind of slotted in as uh, fitting the film more. And at this point, the movie starts to become more violent and more kind of subtly absurd it stars vince vaughn as the main character obviously and uh, i didn't realize how recent this film was i was looking up the director's name again after and it said 2017 so this just came out and you know one of the google hits said uh this is a resurrection for vince vaughn so i guess he needed a resurrection i didn't know he was doing that badly but uh the, you know he is he's pretty great in this movie and it's funny because a couple years ago he was cast in True Detective Season 2, which is, along with Twin Peaks, The Return, uh, the only like live TV show that I covered while it was on. It did not live up to the first season. It was very odd. And uh, Vince Vaughn was one of the more intriguing elements in that. Intriguing and frustrating and kind of exasperating. Uh, he played this mob boss. He had some strange lines and, you know, he... Did what he could, did what he could with him and and vamped him up and uh, some people loved it. My dad loved it. That was like his favorite thing about that that season was uh, Vince Vaughn's juicy, very odd performance. But anyways, the reason I bring that up is uh, one of the big criticisms was why are they casting Vince Vaughn as this like tough guy? You know, he can't pull it off. And there was a feeling throughout like he doesn't quite have the gravitas for this uh, you know this mob boss. Uh, but in this film, he really pulled off being the silent, stoic, tough guy, uh, just to a T. Like, it was a totally compelling performance, totally believable. 
as this guy gone was the schlubby comic sidekick he's become and he just really fit the bill in this part so as i watched this movie i i wasn't i didn't really quite realize what type of movie i was watching until probably the last mm, 45 minutes or so when he actually gets to the maximum security prison and at that point when all of the guards march out and they're all wearing basically fascist uniforms and uh, Don Johnson, I didn't realize it was him. I, I, I couldn't put my finger on who it was. I kind of recognized them. But when he marches out and he's smoking the stogie and he gives him a whole speech that, oh, okay, that's what this is. <laughs> it's like, this is not trying to be a realistic movie. This is a, you know, over-the-top exploitation film. But it took till then, which is an interesting, very intentional project by the film to make us think it's something else and then slowly slowly drag us into this extremely over-the-top world i liked a lot of those early parts i liked a lot of what was what was done with them but i wasn't sure if i really was on board with the film until that last act uh, which is an interesting phenomenon you know and that's something i could probably talk about just in general is sometimes i mean it becomes at that point a much simpler movie in a lot of ways Perhaps in some ways, like even a less ambitious film, it's just it's going directly for kind of that genre jugular and it does it really well. And I, I think that's kind of an interesting phenomenon where a movie that's that may be trying for more can be more dissatisfying and a movie that sets its sights firmly on this is what I want to be, pulls it off. Can, can kind of be more satisfying in that way. What I felt were weaknesses before then, I think they kind of ironed themselves out at that point. I, my biggest problem with the film was the dialogue. The performances were pretty solid all around, um, some really strong ones in there. You know, I, part of the reason I was surprised, it was 2017, I guess this is just as an aesthetic that uh, has been around forever now, but it's because it had very much that mid-2000s bleached out look. It's not my favorite uh, aesthetic. But what I did really like was the use of wide lenses throughout. I thought that was just, a, that's something that doesn't necessarily get done a lot. And it gave this film just a great sense of place. Just throughout, the locations were always captured in a uh, visually compelling way. Uh, you know, and I, I appreciate that. I think um, one of my big problems with a lot of contemporary filmmaking, that sense of sort of enclosure where everything's in close-up, everything's shaky, that, you know, what I call Paul Greengrass effect. I love that this film just opened up and it let you kind of breathe in that space. I like that a lot. Another really nice moment in that sense was when Vince Vaughn arrives in the first prison, the more what we would expect a prison to be in, in the type of movie we think this is, sort of a normal state prison or whatever. And uh, he gets in the room and he's just like seven f***ing years. And, you, and because they use the wide lens and because of just the way it's lit and everything, like you can feel it gives you a full sense of the room how claustrophobic it is. Like that's almost kind of a paradox by using this lens that expands the space. Somehow you get more of a sense of how he's trapped there and you can really sense its limits and his frustration. And that's the last moment in the movie where it even is still moored in a semi-realistic universe. And then after that, it gets into the bizarre kidnapping stuff and the threats and he just descends further and further. I mean, if you wanted to have fun making uh, readings that aren't supported at all by the film... You could decide that maybe when he falls asleep there, the rest is his dream of becoming this valiant hero and saving his wife and dying in the process rather than just wasting away in this mundane cell for seven years. It seems like he's the type of person who he he has the outer capacity to be a good person and restrain 
but deep down he he like wants that sort of cathartic violence you know he does now there are a few signs in the film that it's it is going to ultimately kind of go just jump over the edge and splatter on the ground in a way. One sign is when he beats up his car in the beginning. I kind of laughed out loud at that point. I could, I couldn't help myself, you know, up until then it had been pretty stern, pretty down to earth, but him just like punching the shit out of his car, picking out each mirror and hitting it just kind of made me laugh. Also 18 months later, and this was in New York. I don't know. It seems like it was summer the whole time. So that's, that's a little bit of a of a goof, I guess. It actually made me think that maybe the film was set in Florida, although I did think I saw some New York plates. But I like the use of that location, by the way. I feel like you don't see that many movies set in New York State, not in New York City. Although one of the locations may have been New York City because the credits had um, some mention of New York City. I don't know, maybe the prison or something. Maybe that location was, was from some abandoned, I hope abandoned, jail or something in, in New York. My only real complaint about the final ending is I think the last shot of the movie or second to last or whatever is literally his face blowing apart, which I thought, you know, come on, give, give the man some dignity. He, uh, yeah, he's, he's got to die at the end. I get that. We already got all the, the heads cut off and the one guy smashed his face in. So all you can see is a skull. It's like, okay, okay. You know, there's enough for the gore hounds in the audience. You don't need to throw the hero of the movie under a bus in that sense. I should note, uh, as an addendum, after recording this review, I went back and watched the making of feature, and I was right about the prison. It was a location, although they had to dress it up quite a bit and uh, build some supplementary sets, but it was a location of a fortress, an old fortress in Staten Island. To my surprise, uh, the whole film was shot in Staten Island. Goes to show you, I guess. That's it for this episode. We will be beginning the new season of uh, the podcast. It'll be much more straightforward than this one, which went from like a weekly schedule to then it was going to be a bi-weekly, then it turned into a monthly. This will just be monthly. Every month, uh, first Wednesday of the month, a uh, new episode will come out. So more reliable, slower pace, but hopefully there's some stuff to enjoy here. And here's what we're going to begin with in January. Jane Campion is one of the most splendid filmmakers around. 